Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared US. And in this episode, um, we're introducing uh, a new kind of format that we'll be using from time to time for Intelligence Squared. And we are calling it our Agree to Disagree conversation. And it's definitely going to be what we do best, and that is argument. But it's not going to be a debate in our usual way, because I'm going to be loosening some of our usual limits. So, for example, I won't be putting timers on opening arguments. In fact, we won't have opening arguments. I'm not going to be asking you, our audience, for a sharply framed question, which, as you know, if you're a fan, means that it must end in a question mark, because otherwise I don't call that a question. So looser rules, but we're still going to have a good civil argument. And this one is going to be taking on an issue that's been the topic of a lot of debate around our nation, especially in recent weeks. And it's looking at the fact that so many schools uh, from top to bottom have gone online. And we want to be asking the question, is the future of higher education post-pandemic online as well? We're going to be discussing this question with two very well-informed guests who take some significantly different views on parts of this issue, at least. And they have agreed to disagree on the merits of online education. We'll be asking whether online universities can make higher ed more affordable and more engaging and more equitable for everybody. Or should technology just supplement rather than replace the entire campus environment? Because a lot of people say that environment itself is necessary to a student's personal and professional development. So that's the topic and let's get started. I, I wanna introduce our two conversationalists who will be our two disagreeers, let me put it that way. First, I wanna welcome back Ben Nelson, a former Intelligence Squared US debater and the CEO of the Minerva Project. Ben, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for having me, John. And then just to get us started, tell us what the Minerva Project is. So Minerva set out to show that a new form of education is possible if it's data informed rather than occurring in a regular classroom. So we set up our own university and now we are helping other universities adopt that same philosophy of education. And to what degree is it, uh, does it exist online? So all of our formal classes occur online, even though in our own university, our students do live together and have a social interaction and experience with one another. In fact, they live together and travel to seven different countries across the four years that they're undergraduates. So, it, so you've replaced the lecture hall aspect of university education, essentially, with uh, an online experience. Correct. Okay, and, and the reason I point that out is that the last time that you were part of an Intelligence Squared live program, uh, you argued for a resolution that we debated several years back, and the resolution was more clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete. Um, so right now the lecture hall appears to be on hold, at least for some time. But um, I want to point out that you won in that debate several years back, very briefly, what would you say was your key argument? Why were you making the argument that uh, online could replace the lecture hall? Technology is a tool, right? And so it's, it's like for you to say, well, you know, uh, things are better without electricity than with electricity. Well, if you, have if you have electricity, you can do more things than if you don't. And so the idea is that if you actually can provide some additional 
ways of doing education using technology that you can't do offline, then by definition, you should be able to do something better. All right, I want to bring in the gentleman who's going to be providing a different perspective on this, and that is David Deming. David, welcome to Intelligence Squared US. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I want to let folks know that you are an economist and you're a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School, and you caught our attention on this topic because you recently published an op-ed in the New York Times whose title was, Online Learning Should Return to a Supporting Role. So I think we may see some disagreement there, but in your case, what was your key argument? Uh, well, my key argument was really to think about education as a bundled product uh, and to think about which parts of that bundle can be replaced with online technology and which either can't be replaced at all or are very difficult to replace. And my argument was that actually the lecture hall or, or even more broadly instruction is something for which there are substitutes available online and those substitutes are probably going to continue to get better. And the reason they will is because if I record the best possible lecture for a principles of microeconomics class, um, your consumption of it, your use of it, does not diminish the use of it by other people. And so in that world, these technologies are gonna get better and better and not be diminished by the use of others. They're called non-rival goods in the language of economics. Whereas the other aspects of education, the more personal aspects, tutoring, feedback, mentoring, um, interactions with peers, those things don't scale in the same way as lectures and therefore they're harder to replace. And so they're gonna, in, in some ways, become the more important part of education and the part of education to which access is more and more restricted. And so my argument was not, you know, on, the move to online doesn't mean teachers are going to disappear or be made obsolete by technology. Rather, our roles are gonna change, will be less of kind of sage on the stage as the cliche goes, and more um, guides, mentors, coaches. And I think that's a good thing. So in that sense, Ben and I agree that technology can be a powerful force for improving education. Well, where do you disagree, do you, would you say, Ben? Well, perhaps in the sense that we, we have a very similar perspective, but when we started Minerva, we actually just assumed a world that doesn't quite exist yet, but we assumed where all of the greatest lectures are indeed online and everything is available. Yeah. And we tried to build tools to actually make the mentorship and dialogue part more effective online than off. Uh -huh. So we actually believe that online plays an important role there. I think we also both agree that the socialization, the uh, parties, the campus life, et cetera, it, you know, whether you're an urban campus or a non, you know, a, a cloister campus, you know, we happen to, to believe more in taking advantage of the city, but that's, uh, that's just a preference. So, so I, I right now, I have a college-age daughter. She attends Georgetown, uh, which she's not doing right now. She just completed this week, the end of the spring semester, taking all of her classes at home, and therefore everything was online. The campus was essentially shut down. And Across the nation, there are college students, high school students, elementary students doing the same thing. They don't have, they're not, they're not in a setting where they're, they're getting all of the other stuff. Now, acknowledging that this was, we rushed to this. We didn't, we didn't make allowances for all of the ways to make this perfect. That said, I, I get the impression, certainly from my daughter, that doing even the lecture part online is a very distant second best to being in the classroom in front of a teacher. And that's a one data point, but I think I hear it from around the, 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 the country. And there's this case of this class action lawsuit being brought against a number of schools now in which the argument is doing college online, including 
mentorship, including lectures, uh, seminar groups, is just second best. And it's, it's, just, it's just not as good as being face-to-face. -face. It's a very hard thing to, for, to prove that point one way or the other, but I'm wondering, David, what, what's your view on that? Yeah, I, I guess, my guess is where Ben and I would disagree, agree to disagree, is um, in our level of optimism about whether what something like Minerva is doing can really scale even over the long run and be a sustainable solution for education online for lots and lots of people, not a small number of highly selected undergraduates. And I think your point, John, is, is exactly right. When you look at younger ages, you know, I have a fifth grader and a second grader. Neither one of them is learning anywhere close to as much as they were learning in school. But the fifth grader is doing a little bit better than the second grader because as we get older, as we mature, we become more self-directed or more able to internalize what's happening and be more um, active learners. And I think, you know, everybody's on a continuum, partly to do with age and partly to do with some um, love of learning other things uh, of how much um, we are willing to engage ourselves when the format of education itself is not doing the engagement for us. And I just think for most students, in most cases, um, the nudge of being in person and being engaged in a face-to-face -face relationship in a conversation that you can't look away from uh, is incredibly valuable for aiding the learning process. I think it's possible to do just as well online in some cases for some students, but I, I have my doubts that it will ever be possible to do it as well as in person on the mass scale. Ben, I remember back in 2014 when you debated this issue the first time with us, you actually made the case that being on a live feed on a screen in front of your professor actually focused your attention more because the professor could call on you and see you sitting in front of it and you were staring eye to eye. Do you still make that case? Well, not only do I make that case, when I made that case back then, it was theoretical. It was before we had our first student enrolled in class. Now I know it to be true because we have all of the data. And the reality is that the conversation I find to be fascinating because before the introduction of online, we would never refer to offline education as offline because there is no such thing as offline education, mm -hmm. right? There is the lecture hall. There is the lecture hall with a very bad lecturer, right? The first Bueller uh, example. There's the, uh, the lecture hall with a really dynamic speaker that, you know, is, is engaging. Um, there is the small seminars. There's the tutorial. There are different kinds of offline classes. There are also very different kinds of online classes, right? And I think one of the things that this transition is exposing is less, frankly, the technology and more the teaching. Because if we were to remember when we were undergraduates, and I don't know what your, what your undergraduate, I've been asking this question for years and audiences all over the world. So I have now a data size of several tens of thousands of respondents. And I ask, okay, think about all of your college classes. Tell me what percentage of those classes were transformative? Or what percentage of those classes were really engaging? And the modal response is somewhere between 10 to 15%, right? It's, yeah, I took 30 some classes, three or four of them were great, and then a bunch were average and most were really, really bad, right? And the problem is when you move that to, an, to a setting where that is college, right? Then you're very, very disappointed. Whereas when you're on campus, you just don't go to class, right? You, 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 know, you just skip 
or you, you're cramped for the final and you take that, but you're occupied with other things that keep your interest. Yeah, so Ben, what I hear you saying is if we're gonna compare a small immersive class that's given online to a big in-person lecture hall with 500 participants, that the online one is better. And I agree with that. But I think, I think there's a different point in that. I think that's not leading us to a where everything's online. I think that's leading us to a world where technology exerts competitive pressure on residential education to become better, become less like the big lecture hall and, and more immersive. And I think even though an online class with 10 people is definitely, can be very high quality, it's also expensive to administer because the student to faculty ratio is small. It's not that different in terms of cost than an in-person education. And if what that does is make all of us spend more time face-to-face -face with our students and less time up on stage, I think that'll be a great thing, but I don't think it'll be the disappearance of in-person education. That's kind of what I'm saying. Well, and that's true, but what our demonstration has been that you can actually take like for like and improve the experience. So we don't compare the 15-person yeah. seminar to the you know 100-person lecture. What we do is we take a 100-person fully active learning seminar and compare that to a 100-person offline experience. And we find that's, that's very engaging. We've run a pilot before COVID um, with a rural university in India doing curriculum we've never done before in classes of at least 60 people on camera and tracking learning gains, comparing that to the learning gains they made with the same professors in offline classes. And it was night and day. And this is actually the real benefit of these tools. Remember, online isn't taking a technology that was built for something else. We're having conversation on Zoom. So wonderful video conferencing technology. It is not a learning environment, right? And so I'll give you some very basic uh, lessons that we learned just a few months after that first debate. In our very first class uh, that we, or set of classes that we, we offered, we asked our professors to uh, write down at the end of class who the best performing student was in every session. And then what we do at Minerva is we actually go back and we assess how students are actually doing. Same professors go back and give students um, assessments on select things that they said during the class time using rubrics. And then we looked at the scores that they gave students. Well, it turns out that in the first two weeks of class, when we ran this little experiment, across all professors teaching all sections, who they said was the best student wasn't the highest scoring student when you looked at the data. It turns out that the highest or the best student that they thought was always a male, and the highest score was always a female. So there's a lot of things that occur offline that are much harder to do online. I had a professor when I was an undergraduate. Wait, let me, let me, just, yeah. let me just break in because you, you had quite a run there and I just want to let David respond to some of it. Are, are you in any way persuaded by, the, by the, the real life experiment that Ben is now reporting to you on? I, I mean, I, I guess I'm persuaded that as the proof of concept, it's possible to design an online education that's as good as an in-person, possibly even better than some in-person education. But I, I am not persuaded that that means it will happen everywhere for all people at any point or that it should happen everywhere. And, and I think that's, that if, to the extent that we have a disagreement, that's it. I think I, I am much less optimistic about the ability to scale this beyond a few number, including people like Ben who are extremely committed to the technology and extremely committed to doing a great job. I have no doubt it can be done. 
so, just so David, what let is me just let me yeah, let me just say I, I think the reason John in many ways is just we're evolutionarily hardwired to 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 draw more out of an experience when it's in person. And I don't think we can re-engineer that in a single generation, no matter how hard we try. Although we should try because you know there are lots of people who can't get access to education unless it's online, and that's definitely a benefit of online education. So I'm not anti-online. I just think we have to be realistic about what's you know like the limits of it compared to in-person. So what do you see, David, going wrong with, a, potentially going wrong with attempts yeah. to move in this direction? Um, I think the main issue is um, for students, and, I, and I've, there's been a number of studies of, and I, I realize MOOCs are not what Minerva's doing, so I don't mean to compare Minerva to MOOCs, but when you well, look still, at some start, of the- Stop and tell people what a MOOC is. Sorry, and, a MOOC is a massively open online course. And this is a course that's offered by many prestigious universities like Harvard, MIT, Stanford, and many others. Um, that essentially offer free access to a course for anyone in the world who wants to take it and so access to some materials. But that's kind of a pure form of one part of the one part of the bundle of education, the kind of instruction part. You don't necessarily, some of them do, but you don't necessarily get that much feedback. And you certainly don't get that much interpersonal interaction with your peers or with the instructor. And what studies of those have generally found is first, completion rates are very low, um, like less than 20% in many cases. And they skew more towards the more advantaged. So students who come in with more levels of preparation, advanced degrees already, are already essentially self-directed learners who don't need the help are much more likely to finish those classes than students who don't have those advantages. And I think that totally accords with my expectations as a teacher, which is it's the students who come in um, less prepared at the beginning who often A, need more help to get through and B, ultimately end up getting the most out of it. And so my concern is if everything's online, there's less of a chance to discover that star student um, who may not come from a traditional background, but really gets engaged in the life of the university. And I think that happens um, not enough as it should at a place like Harvard, but it, it'll happen a lot less if we were to go online. Ben, at Minerva, when the coronavirus uh, uh, social distancing measures were put in place, did your, did your student body scatter? I know that you, you're set up and you have several campuses around the world. Or not campuses, you have several- Residence halls. Residence halls around the world and that's where the social part of Minerva takes right. place. Did those students scatter or have they all gone home? Uh, largely, but not all. So uh -huh. for example, uh, most of our students are not wealthy. Uh, that's actually one of the unique features about our own university. And so we didn't have the luxury to just say, everybody go, go home now. Also, more than 90% of our students in any given residential location, their home country is not the country that that is, that they're in at that time. And so they can't just drive home. They have to get on an air, on a flight, they have to book one, etc. And most of our students, for example, in Taipei now, all of our students are, are home. Um, but in, in, in Hyderabad, we had a lot of uh, um, lead time. So we only had about 15 students left, but Hyderabad is in lockdown. Those 15 students can't leave. And so they're still in the residence hall. And in Buenos Aires, we didn't have a lot of time. So we had only half of our students be able to go home before the airports shut down. So we, but in all of those cases, we delayed class by uh, one day. So we basically said, uh, you know, we took half a week of classes and put them at the end of the semester to give people time to go home. But outside of that, Everybody finished their semester on time. The modality. Of so yeah, because not that much had changed from them from the point of view of the of the the tutelage part of education. Correct. And I and I want to point out that I think more and more people are beginning to be familiar with the Zoom software. But Minerva developed its own software so that really interesting things happen where 
uh, people who are raising their hands and, and contributing, but they can break into small groups. There's seminar size. It's much more sophisticated and designed for to, to try to replicate. Well, I don't want to say try to replicate. It's much more designed to, it's much more inspired by the education that most of us have experienced in the analog world. But here's another question I want to bring us to is, should students be paying as much in tuition for a course that for for an education where much of the of the the teaching and the educational component is happening online as opposed to a classroom an air-conditioned classroom with lighting and custodial services and beautiful paneling um what, what do you think about that david uh it's a tough question john i mean i think it really de depends on the length of um the online spell and how much it actually interferes with the totality of the educational experience Right. So I think what students should expect and demand is as close to as, as the same quality of education as they were getting when it when it was residential. And so I think we don't know how colleges are going to respond um, in the fall. You know, in fact, my own institution, everyone's trying to figure this out and nobody thinks it's OK to just do what's happening right now, where all classes suddenly had to go to Zoom in, in basically a week's notice and everyone was scrambling. I think we all know that that's not good enough. And we're all trying to figure out, sort of catch up in some ways to some of the things that Minerva and other, other folks have done about trying to innovate in the online space. It's sort of a grand experiment on that scale. And so I think the question is how good can we get, how close can we get to that approximation? And then also what sort of community building efforts can we um, create and sustain and improve to try to replace all of the learning that happens outside of the classroom on a campus like Harvard? And I think this is the top priority for everybody at the school, including me, we're 24-7 um, thinking about, I expect, to, I teach a large lecture class in the fall, and if it ends up being online, I plan to spend a lot of time over the summer preparing, and essentially, I'll probably have to completely redesign the class. And whether it'll be as good, I don't know, but I'm certainly going to try to make it as good, because I think I have an obligation to do that. You know who can help you redesign the class because he's got expertise, <laughs> and who who might actually be willing yeah. to sell Harvard uh, a, a platform for that? Well, that's above my pay grade, but I'd love to talk to Ben about how. I can... <laughs> no, and and look, I think I think this is this brings up one of uh, an argument that I've been, long been making about about the imbalance of costs of higher education. I think higher education charges the right amount if you look at you know the headline price the the, the private school seventy thousand dollar a year they, they charge the right amount but in the wrong mixture right right now universities charge fifty five thousand dollars in tuition and fifteen thousand dollars in room and board they should charge fifteen thousand dollars in tuition and fifty five thousand dollars of room and board hmm. right because if you actually look at where the dollars are spent right the amount of money that a professor gets paid, right, for teaching one or two courses a year, you know, divided by the number of students they're teaching, comes out to about 20% of the tuition bill, right? The, all of the rest is the campus. It's the museums and the athletics and, and the lawns and the libraries, and it should be priced accordingly. But it should also then, if you look at that perspective, all of a sudden universities can say, wait a second, I can actually scale, especially if I can do it in a quality way, the education delivery portion of what I'm, do what I'm doing, cognizant of the fact that I cannot scale the campus. It's too expensive. And now perhaps I can provide, not free, right, which is, you know, as David was saying, the MOOC experiment, which 
you do get what you pay for and intuition should not be free for many reasons, right? But it should be affordable and accessible because I bet that if Harvard were to say, look, you know, we can only accommodate 6,700 undergraduates, right, on our campus. And yeah, it costs even more than $70,000. That's a discounted rate to what it actually costs us. But you can get a, an even higher quality Harvard education by using some of these cross-contextual learning objectives that you can do with, with, uh, with a well-built technology and fully active learning. And we can offer that for $20,000, $15,000 to anybody who qualifies anywhere in the world. That's transformative. David, do you have a re reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, I know this is agree to disagree, but I, I find myself in vigorous agreement with one thing Ben said, which is that we ought to be using technology and online tools to make existing education much better and to get much more serious about the science of learning and understanding what actually is a high quality education. That's a critical weakness, not just for Harvard, but all in higher, all in higher education. Where I'm not sure I agree, it's not that I disagree, but I think the question of, of price is one very complicated for a number, for one reason is that the price that you pay when you go to a school like Harvard or possibly Minerva for that matter is not the same for every student. And posted tuition prices are the solution to a pretty complex um, algorithm that every college is, is, is solving for where they're trying to charge students what they can afford to pay and make the campus diverse. And all campuses can do better on that on that score. But one reason why tuition at private schools is 70,000 is because schools like Harvard are trying to push it down to zero for low income students and still pay the bills. And that means charging families that can afford it something much closer to full freight. Um, and so I think that the price thing is a little bit complicated. But the one thing where I think it would be interesting to talk about is to zoom out on this a little bit and to think about how online technology is being used or in my view misused on um, our, our great public university campuses. My big concern, and I talked about this in the piece, is that online tools are, are used as a way to cut costs rather than as a way to increase quality. And so my, my concern is that cash-strapped public universities, and they're gonna be hit extremely hard by um, declining state budgets in the wake of the recession. Um, and in the last recession, you saw a lot of schools go online as a way to lower the, the cost of delivering an education to students. And that also lowers the quality, but we're in a world where everybody needs to know more than, than, they, than their parents did. The knowledge frontier is moving outward. We need to invest in education and get more for our money. So use the tools to create more learning for the same price rather than using the tools to create less learning for the, you know, for the same price. So I think that's really where we have to push. Right, and, and I, I will also agree with David. I think that's exactly <laughs> right. Because the, again, the reality is you can save a lot of money by teaching on Zoom. Zoom is practically free, right? Coursera is practically free, right? But that basically replicates what you do offline in the worst way it hmm. is a degradation right whereas if you invest a little bit of money in curricular thought and in instructional design and pedagogical reform you can improve what upon what's happening offline Just for a very simple reason that you can actually deliver curricular education curricular level education as opposed to course level education right imagine a professor starting a class knowing that their students have mastered a certain set of skills that they can then apply in that class and have the data on which students are struggling with which areas and how to modify their educational experience accordingly. You can't do that without technology. It's impossible. I, I, you know, the, the, the beauty of calling this agree to disagree is that you also get to agree. So I, I'm hearing a lot of agreement here, but some interesting disagreements. But I, I want to wrap up with one question to each of you as a, 
an act of imagination and then all participated in it as well. I'll start with you, David. If you could go back in time to when you were in college, would you, how would you feel about treating some of all of the classes you did, including some of the worst classes you did for having an online stay at home, not get out of bed, do it on your own schedule kind of uh, dial in version of seeing your professor on a screen and his or her seeing you on a screen. Would you trade that? No, I would feel terribly about it. I think I was um, at age 19, 20, barely capable of dragging myself to class um, on a regular basis. I think if I knew it was online and I could just roll out of bed and watch it, I would have skipped a lot more class than I did. And I would have been a worse student and I would have gotten less out of the education. And, um, you know, I'm somebody who, this is my career. So uh, I don't have any illusions about it. Maybe that's one reason why I do, despite our agreement, remain skeptical of the ability of online education to scale. Because I think, you know, the people in college, they're adults, but they're also young adults. And many of them are not, um, they don't have the, the, the um, you know, the, I mean, many adults don't have the level of engagement necessary to, to really step in. Learning is hard. Learning is cognitively taxing and you need to be nudged into doing it. Um, and I think that's human nature. It certainly was for me. And Ben, same question to you. If you could go back in time, are, are, do, do you regret the online experience you didn't get to have back in the old, old, old days? In, in many ways, I do. Uh, really? And I do primarily because, much like David, I skipped a ton of classes. <laughs> um, and I, I didn't wind up showing up for a lot of my courses. And this is actually where online can actually improve things. At Minerva, as an example, if you miss three classes or you miss four classes, you get an F, right? You, at, at, at participation is required, right? And so if all of my professors actually had to do what the very best professors I had did, probably four or five of my professors who were really exceptional and engaging, but if the structure of their classes ensured that we as students had to come prepared and they had to come and engage us, yeah. I'd much better trade that off. All right, I rarely, I rarely take sides in an argument and I'm not going to on this one, but on this particular question, I am with David. I, <laughs> I, but however, where I'm not with David is I never cut class. I was really, <laughs> just really a good boy <laughs> and went to all of my classes, even the horrible ones. Um, I want to thank the two of you for the opposite of a horrible conversation and our first outing with the agree to disagree approach to having an intelligence squared conversation. Uh, I, I think we did find some interesting fault lines. You took us to some interesting places. Uh, you both brought a great spirit, curiosity, and uh, willingness to engage to what we were doing here. So I want to thank you very, very much for that, David Deming and Ben Nelson. Thanks so much for joining us on Intelligence Squared. Agree to disagree.